0: The reading, the reading this morning is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 12, starting at verse 5. And that's on page 1044 in your Bibles. That's Acts, ch- chapter 12, starting at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak round you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she rang back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Now Chris is going to come up and share a few words about that passage for us as we continue in our series of great prayers in the Bible.
1: Well, let's pray before I start. But Heavenly Father, we just ask that you would give me clarity and simplicity to explain the wonderful truth that is the hope of prayer. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as Joe so beautifully read for us, there's a story there that in a way encapsulates how so many of us feel when we see prayers answered. In this case, it's a pretty radical answer to prayer in the sense that Peter is released from jail via an angelic visitation, guards, shackles, chains, wrought iron gates of what we assume was a high security prison just laid open and he can walk home, walk to a friend's mother's home. And there he sees, he tries to get get in and he's greeted with, I guess, astonishment. And maybe this sort of resonates with us. How often do we see prayers answered, perhaps not in such spectacular ways, perhaps, perhaps so, and think, ah, it can't be the Lord, or, or, or we're just gobsmacked. And in a way, this indicates perhaps, certainly in my case, um, a deeper issue of really wondering and truly questioning whether God will actually come through for us. And so I guess my, my prayer for us this morning as we go through this um, the whole title of the hope of prayer is to better acquaint ourselves with who God is um, and a desire to press Him in that rich um, engagement that is prayer. Job, in the midst of his suffering, says, How I long for the days when God's intimate friendship blessed my house. So, my, my prayer, I guess, is for us all that we are restored in our confidence and in our trust. That prayer is this wonderful gift. It's not something which indicates moral rectitude, but it's a wonderful language and dialogue we can create and, and, and share, not only as a church, but as individuals, and clearly with the Lord, who ordained it and designed it in the first place. So I guess that's the, the, the basic theme. And we'll be looking at a number of, if you like, um, areas in which we can press in on that front. And I guess I wanted to start, first of all, by reminding us of some of the themes that Tim, I know, has been sharing in the wake of the Freedom Ministry that we picked up about a year or two ago, and the realization that whether we like it or not, uh, we are in a battle. We are in this collision of kingdoms. Um, You'll be aware that ever since Christ was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, that there has been this establishing of a bridgehead into enemy territory. I'm an ex-soldier, so I I, I enjoy all this kind of language. So so indulge me if you will. And and as a result of that, a lot of us have forgotten the power of prayer and the reason why we are called to pray ceaselessly. And I want to remind us of some of the scriptures that explain that there is a clear adversary out there. We're told that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. We're told that he roars, said again, prowls around the earth. Prowls prowls around the world roaring like a lion seeking whom he may devour. And many of us will see and bear and carry the wounds, the battle injuries that come from being in the front line as representing that Christian kingdom of of light, of goodness, of truth in the wake of all that seeks to destroy us, to accuse us in our lives. Um, I was at a funeral last Thursday with my great aunt who uh, was widowed, age 21, because it was the war and I discovered that as a result of her mother's insistence, despite five subsequent offers of marriage, she was not able to marry, her mother wouldn't let her, she had to look after her mother, and she had decades of really miserable widowhood. Right at the end, I know my my brothers managed to pray with her, and there was some glimpse of heaven, but for decades, the life of abundance that the Lord loves to give to us was robbed from her. So I guess getting back to this earlier point of prayer, Um, My my prayer is for us, as we go through this this sermon this morning, that we'd be impassioned to press in again, to engage in those deeper moments, so that we can have that strength, the ability to overpower those adversarial forces that come against us, be that the sick gossip in the office, be that the sense of confusion and and self-esteem battles that many of us face. And as a way of exemplifying, exemplifying this, I getting back to my military analogy, I wanted to share with you uh, an experience of mine some years ago in in Iraq. And I'd arrived in Baghdad. I wasn't working with British forces at the time. Uh, And Baghdad, to put it mildly, was was frisky. There was a raging insurgency. We uh, were, one way or another, um, vulnerable, susceptible to ambush. The ongoing IED threat was significant. IEDs, improvised explosive devices, Um, Not to mention the heat, the dust, the sheer alienness and and the confusion of of the initial post-invasion scenario. Throw into that um, frictions with our American coalition partners in the way in which we were treating the local population and the way in which they were treating them. Not to mention uh, internal problems. I had soldiers fighting, beating the living daylights out of each other, having to be sent home to... Go to military prison back here in in the UK, and so there was this sense of abiding disorder, chaos, fear, fright, um, and it plays, of course, to this point that we've been mentioning earlier that we are in this battle, whether we like it or not. Now, I had an offer from an American colleague to take uh, elements of my team to a place called Camp Victory, which was a rest and recuperation uh, facility. It was one of Saddam's old um, summer palaces and even getting there was a nightmare. You had to leave at odd times of the night because the route there was so um, primed with enemy ambushes and the threat was significant. In addition to that, you had to vary your route and once you eventually got into the local vicinity of this camp, this this old um, Saddamite fortress, there were a number of concentric rings of security and you'll see where I'm going with this. First, there was this massive mountain, if you like, of perimeter wire, razor wire, on which every sort of 50 to 100 meter point was situated a, uh, an American soldier with a 50 cal machine gun. Flying above all this was um, a series of Apache gunships. So little by little, there was this sense as you entered this, this facility, this rest and recuperation palace, are feeling just a little bit safer despite the hardship that it took to get to the place in in, 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 in the first place. Little by little, you then went through vehicle checkpoints, and eventually you were in these old solid stone walls of what was originally some kind of fortress that Saddam Hussein had then recommandeered and built up for his own security. And amazingly enough, once you got inside, there was this great sense of, you were able to take off your helmet, your body armor, It was a a tangible sense of peace, of of safety. You took away the the, the magazine, the rounds from your weapon. You put it in an armory. You were given a pair of swimming trunks and a t-shirt. As you wandered out into this beautiful space, you saw groves of date trees. They had uh, a huge lake there where people were given fishing rods to fish. They had a volleyball net. We played volleyball with the CIA. They had a most amazing swimming pool where you could, uh, it wasn't like a sports pool that was on different layers, there was a gentle fountain, there were cascading waterfalls. And on all the trees and on the corners and pillars of this great setup were positioned speakers playing soft piano music that just floated out over the environment. So you get the picture. One minute, it almost felt like this. You were in effectively a combat zone, a war zone. There was explosions of mortar rounds coming into play. There were total distrust with the Iraqi police and the local civilian contractors that were supposed to be helping us, but all the while we knew they were feeding back intelligence on our positions, on who we were to the insurgents. And then suddenly, despite the hardship of getting to this palace, of going through these concentric rings of security, you, gen- you, you reach this place of, of peace, of tranquility, of feeling, oof, it was a rest from the battle and... In addition to that, we ate Ben and Jerry's ice cream, incredible hamburgers, shrimp gumbo, and, and you know I'm labouring the point here. But of course, this is the hope of prayer; that it gives us this wonderful respite, this refuge, this rest and recuperation from the battle that we're in. And so, on leaving, it was called Camp Victory, ironically. On leaving this camp, sure, we, we, well, of course, I wasn't sort of totally. Um, uh, blissfully unaware that there was a battle raging. But I left with my senses sharpened. I left feeling somehow rebalanced. And of course, this is the purpose, and if you like, the hope of prayer, that by coming into that intimate presence of the Lord, we can be strengthened, made fit for purpose. I've heard prayer described as the gymnasium of the soul, where we can be made more resilient for Christian living. Clearly, this is just one aspect. But it did mean that as I left then Camp Victory, I was in a better place to cope with what came next. I was strengthened. I just felt that sense of, it's going to be all right. It's, and, and, and you get the picture here. And similarly, though, as we leave our time of prayer, whenever you might have it, and if you don't, and I'm as guilty as the next person, I'd really recommend and prayerfully suggest you take it back on again, those times of sweet intimacy with the Lord. It allows you to see the world through through, through God's eyes. You can observe it through those if you like, the, that divine lens. And I guess that's the, one of the hopes of prayer, but the hope of prayer that I'm dwelling on today. And we can use that and couch it in biblical language. For example, you know, we, we, we know and love Psalm 23. Psalm 23 speaks of the still waters and the green pastures, the oil, he anoints my head with oil because he's our good shepherd. So as we, as we get into the bounds of prayer, my prayer is all of us, we'll get into that place where we can use God's own language, his own words, his own promises. Because he is the good shepherd. He is our heavenly father. He's not going to give us a stone when we ask for bread. Or fish. Or, sorry, or scorpions when we ask for fish. And so by using his words, his own promises, in a way where we're invoking his own will for us, we're using it back to him. And we can, I think, with some confidence, maybe challenge him, Lord, please, please, Show me those green pastures, those still waters. Restore my soul. And you see, of course, that when we get into this, as hard as it is, and it's not easy, I'm going to be touching finally after this on, on some of the ways we can meditate and ponder upon God's words, but um, how we can restore hope and prayer, or the hope of prayer, to be something that really is a, a, a deep blessing and a and the chance to recharge and um, if you like, strengthen our position. And we touched on the Psalms, Psalm 23 is a beauty, but it's interesting that often the Psalms are referred to as the prayer book of the Bible. You've only got to go to Psalm 1, the very first Psalm in in this prayer book I've just referred to. And uh, I think it says, what's the effect of, blessed is he or she that delights in the law of the Lord. And on that law, He meditates, she meditates day and night. And of course, this invokes the whole idea of this, not so much the knee-jerk cry of the heart, but a more considered, measured, um, contemplative form of prayer where we take God's words. It's the best way possible, frankly, of using the very words that he's given us to get to know him better, to then seek him in his presence. And... If I could give one sort of pithy description of what I think meditation is, which would then in, to instill that hope in us, that trust that God means what he says, I would say it is pushing the deep biblical truths that we, we, we know of. Psalms, as I said, is the best way to start. Pushing them into our hearts so that it not just impacts our hearts, our beings, our inner persons, but of course it affects and delights and changes us, allowing the Holy Spirit the hope of glory in our hearts to live out of us, to change us by embedding the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, etc., etc., into that, that core of our being so that we are changed through prayer. Because obviously if God ordained and designed and invented prayer, it's because he longs to change us through it and to spend time with us in it so that we might know him better and get to know him, uh, sorry, and, and, and get to resemble him. And of course, that again is the great hope of prayer, that it's not done through I suppose, a feeling of ought or moral rectitude, but rather through this deep desire to press in and change. Um, I could go on more about the contemplative, meditative nature of prayer. Um, I think I'll leave it there. I could leave one line, but I think it's Psalm 43 that says, one thing I ask, one thing I desire, is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And sometimes if we just, in the quiet of the day, if we carve out those five minutes, you remember Jesus got up early, Beat the madding crowd and spend time in the high places on his own in prayer. If we can do the same and we pluck some favorite verse and just read it out loud, perhaps again and again, to enunciate it, to soak it up, to drink it in, and allow the power of those words to change us. I think there's another good one, Psalm 103. I'm going to need to use my notes here. But bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits. And again, you know, we can go through these, these short, pithy nuggets, if you like. And they do instill hope as we think of all the benefits, all the ways in which God has looked after us. Our good shape leading us onward through the green pastures, the still waters, albeit occasionally through those rugged, rugged desert conditions. So, you get a feel then for the... Um, The hope that is prayer, I I, I hope. And I've got to be careful, I should put a caveat on this. Of course, John talks about the spirit of the Lord blows where he will. And of course, who am I to say that you definitely do this, you will meet the Lord in the most radical way. From my limited experience, you um, are more likely to get that sweet intimacy that Job talks about during these kind of prayers, but of course the Lord can operate and bless us in innumerable ways, sometimes which are so hard to forget because of their beauty and resonance. Um, so I leave you with that. As a final uh, gesture, I wanted to show you, excuse me, Alfie's favorite bathroom toy, and you'll see where I'm coming with this. I know Ray at the back, you won't able to see this, but it's the dolphin, and for those at the front, when you twist it a little bit, you can see that the, uh, the dorsal fin or the tail fin spins around and allows it to do this in the bath, paddling pool, even swimming pool if you've got access to one. Now the point is with a dolphin, it's not like a normal fish. It can't breathe underwater through gills. The very observant of you will see that it has a blowhole. So that means that it has to retreat or retract from its normal habitat of the murky depths and come up to the surface to take in air, point one. The next point is, is that in order to survive, it needs to do this at a maximum of once every 20 minutes. On average, however, dolphins do it once every eight minutes and sometimes even less. And you see where I'm going with this, air, prayer. The third point I'd like to make is that when it goes up to the surface, the first thing it does is It expels all the old air, the carbon dioxide, the water residue that's still stuck in its system. And then it can take in that pure, sweet, fresh air that empowers it to return down to the depths, the murky seabed or wherever. And then the final point I'd like to make is that dolphins are what's called conscious breathers. That means that they have to remember to breathe. We all don't have to remember or remind ourselves, you know, note to self, Breathe. Dolphins do. And if they don't, if they don't go up to the surface to take in fresh, pure air and expel the old water, the old gases, etc., they're in serious trouble. And I don't need to insult your intelligence to, to draw the kind of parallel themes with that and our prayer lives. So I guess thanks for the gift of your time. My prayer is now that as we head off the, the thin desert trickles of our prayer life, and I'm speaking to myself maybe as individuals or as a church, will be transformed into the gushing torrent of a springtime river as it moves its way through verdant valleys and green pastures. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we trust that you as our Heavenly Father long to hear us pray, instill and inspire us to know that you are not going to, to let us down, that you are going to come through for us, and that you delight in our prayers. And Lord, would we know that you do provide respite from the battle, you do restore our soul in amidst the frictions and pressures of life? Lord, let us know that prayer takes us into your presence, that it is indeed the gymnasium of the soul. Lord Jesus, let us recommit to your wonderful scriptures. And use your words and promises as we pray. And finally, Lord, help us to meditate and be changed as we pray. And Lord, would we not forget to surface air? Amen.